Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 379 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know folks exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT, and on this show in particular, we will be hitting you with an NXT deadline ultimate preview, breaking down every single match on WWE and NXT's final premium live event of 2022. In fact, for WWE or AEW, it's the final day of premium live events and pay-per-views with, of course, AEW's Ring of Honor airing Final Battle earlier in the day on Saturday. So we have a ton to get to across this show talking NXT and AEW. We're not going to waste a lot of time off the top. Let's just do what we always do to start the show. Let me remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little longer. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We tweet about wrestling all week long, whether it's news, analysis, live during the shows, or what have you. We post polls before and after all pay-per-views and premium live events. That way, you have the opportunity to have your voice heard on the podcast, and it is also the spot where you can contribute to the show by sending in DMs, tweets, questions, comments for the show that we try our best to read on the air as frequently as possible. As I noted, there is an absolute ton to get to today. A lot to talk about from AEW, a lot to talk about from NXT. And on this show in particular, we're going to go ahead because it's an ultimate preview edition and we always save those for the end of the show. We're going to do NXT second on this week's episode. We're going to kick things off with AEW. And as always, just one more reminder, if you're a first time listener or someone who maybe doesn't listen to the Thursday show that frequently, we do have timestamps in our episode description. So whether you only watch one brand or the other, or you're looking for that ultimate preview right before NXT deadline uh, airs, whether it's, you know, Friday, Saturday, in the short period of time leading up to it, and you just want to hear the ultimate preview of NXT deadline, hit our episode description, find those timestamps, and you can jump around. But as always, when we talk about uh, these Thursday shows, and really every episode that we do here of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, I hope you're hitting play and then taking your hands off your phone or your device, whatever the case, and listening to the entire thing. That's that's the goal of these episodes, right? It's to, even if you don't necessarily watch the show, maybe you hear about what the other program is doing, maybe you learn something, maybe your opinion gets changed or reinforced, right? Based on what we're talking about, or perhaps you just completely disagree with me. And guess what? That's totally fine too. So as I said, we're going to kick things off with AEW, a general overview of AEW from this week, straight up. Rampage was a terrible one-hour wrestling show. It was worthless. I I didn't feel like I gained a single bit of insight. I mean, there were some matches made on the show, so I guess it had some value in terms of storyline, but it was bad from start to finish. Dynamite was the opposite. A really strong show, particularly in terms of in-ring action with the men's title matches standing out. Uh, We saw the TNT Championship, Samoa Joe and Darby Allin. That was very good. And then the Tag Team Championship at the end of the show, the acclaimed against FTR, superb match. So, you know, watching Dynamite, even though some of it, sure, was building for ROH Final Battle, the majority of the show I found to be extremely entertaining. And like I said, particularly from an in-ring 
standpoint. So let's kick things off the way AEW kicked things off. And that was with the Dynamite Diamond Ring Battle Royal. I don't exactly know what it was called. I think it was called that. So they only announced like six people for this match and they ended up mostly being the finalists, which really made the Battle Royal aspect kind of ridiculous. You know, if I was going to talk to AEW and say, hey, do this a little bit differently, maybe do a six-person elimination match or a fatal five-way or, or something like that rather than a battle royal, which just seems kind of irrelevant given what was up for grabs and the circumstances of the storyline that they were telling already with MJF. So that would be my take. A Jungle Boy took out Lee Moriarty with Morrissey booting him off the apron and then choke slamming him into the ring apron really ugly spot, like ugly, meaning it probably hurt Jungle Boy a lot. And that's clearly going to start a feud. I guess his thing is finally over with Christian and Luchasaurus, or at least until Christian is healthy and able to come back and wrestle Jungle Boy. Uh, Matt Hardy, Ethan Page, Ricky Starks, and Sean Dean were the final four with Page forcing Hardy to team up. Page screamed at Hardy for not eliminating Dean on his behalf. Starks eliminated Hardy with a great tornado DDT off the ropes on page, following before a uh, attempted elimination off like a kind of a counter. And basically, Page ran at Starks. He caught him, flipped him over the rope, and he got the win. So MJF's music hit literally one second after the bell, and that was purposeful because he wanted to ruin Starks' moment winning the match. He first said Brian Danielson is terrified of him, and then he promised to retain his title and ring. MJF called Starks the drizzling shits and compared him to, and then quoted The Rock, calling him a Rudy Pooh candy ass, and also referring to him as Dollar Store Dwayne and Pebble, given he's stolen the rest of his gimmick already from The Rock. Then he said Reign of Terror, which is a phrase that he trademarked uh, this past week. It's also a reference to WWE and Triple H, given his Reign of Terror as champion. So another like WWE reference. You know, for me, this one in particular is a bit eye rolling, but some people like him, whatever. Uh, Starks bumped his shoulder uh, when he went to grab a mic. He called him Maxi Pad and then a fifth rate Roddy Piper. Fans immediately chanted Maxi Pad. Starks then ran down everything about MJF's look, saying he's cheap, he's not good enough to be AEW champion, while Starks always delivers and will take responsibility off of MJF's plate by taking the title. MJF then low blowed him with a kick. Starks dodged a ring punch and hit MJF with a spear off the ropes to end the segment. So look, it was an absolute fire promo from Starks here, right? It felt like what someone would say to conclude a banger of a three-month feud leading into a pay-per-view main event. Except it's for a title match on television that everyone knows he's going to lose. So, you know, I'm not downplaying it. It was a promo of the year contender. Zero question about it. Definitely top 10, maybe top five, and it's going to be up for the award, no doubt about it. It's just really tough to kind of remember every single promo that was cut in an entire calendar year. But this was fantastic. Starks was operating on all cylinders, top tier stuff. It did wonders, at least for me, to sell their match and get me excited for it next week. And it makes it even more curious why the hell Starks wasn't featured on TV frequently, even just to cut promos and talk shit over the last few months, apparently he was injured for a short period of time. You can still get this guy on television, raising the rent and building his character. MJF, by comparison, was mediocre. It's possible that was on purpose to let Starks stand out and shine. But really, the last couple weeks of MJF, it's been incredibly repetitive. We talked last week 
about that extended promo segment with really William Regal that felt like it was four topics in one and he was just trying to get too much out. Here, it just felt monotonous stuff coming from MJF and he's great on the mic and he'll rebound and cut some great promos. But the last two weeks, it's really not been banner stuff from MJF, who is the number one or two, or three maybe, top three uh, promo guy in the entire company. Uh, the match, the, the Battle Royal, going back to that, it sucked. And this is probably going to wind up being the start of a longer storyline for Starks that eventually ends with him either winning the AEW Championship or perhaps the TNT Championship. So when's that going to happen? I have no idea. But this is definitely a way to kick things off, put him in position to be the number two young babyface, probably right behind Hangman Page. And this was a really, like I said, it was a really solid way to kind of say, I'm Ricky Starks, I'm here. And not only am I going to make this match feel important, but you're going to be seeing a lot of me going forward, which is really the way they should be using Ricky Stark. So two thumbs up from Ricky, uh, no thumbs up whatsoever for MJF here. But again, I feel like at least a part of it from MJF's side of things was purposeful. Uh, John Moxley backstage said he's an AEW to fight, not to talk. Mox said he, Claudio Castagnoli, and Wheeler Uter are going to bring back ass-kicking wrestling over the next three shows with the goal of putting the Jericho Appreciation Society in their rearview mirror for good. Thank the Lord. Then he told Hangman Page to come find him. Uh, strong promo as usual from Mox. So we had a scheduled match, Claudio and Yuta against Jake Hager and Daniel Garcia. Mox and Sammy Guevara were at ringside. Hager completely botched a hurricanrana off the ropes. Instead, he fell flat on his face. Claudio swung him. Uh, Sammy stopped Claudio from a springboard move and grabbed his arms in view of the referee, but Mox was apparently allowed to just pull him down. Uh, the heels did a double submission spot and Claudio beat Hager with an uppercut. This was mostly billed for their respective matches at final battle. And, you know, it relatively succeeded, I would say, in doing that. Some entertaining wrestling, the right team won, and being able to come up front and say, hey, this is the end of the BCC-JAS feud. That obviously was a massive positive, and that continued a little bit in what happened immediately after the match. And that was Tony Schiavone jumping in the ring to show an interview that was taped with William Regal. He was wearing a Blackpool Combat Club jacket. This happened after full gear, but preceding the dynamite that uh, succeeded it. Regal said it was being taped in advance just in case something happens to him. Almost like someone who thinks they're wanted by the mob taking uh, taping a video to say goodbye to their family or um, uh, Robert Downey Jr., you know, uh, Tony Stark in uh, Avengers Endgame, you know, taping the thing on the Iron Man helmet just in case he perished in the final battle. Uh, pun not intended there. Uh, that way his daughter uh, could see it and say, I love you 3000. So something along those lines. Anyway, Regal said he gave MJF what he wanted, which was to be world champion, but he needs to be careful what he wished for as everyone is now going to be chasing him. Regal said he realized the BCC no longer needed him months ago, but they also wouldn't let him go. So it was time for them to lead by example. Regal said the turn on Mox was him teaching his final lesson, always stay one step ahead and keep eyes in the back of your head. Regal then said he's BCC till the day that he dies. So Shivani asked Mox, hey, what do you think about all this? And Mox just like completely no-sold it and ignored that the video even played. He said, the only thing I know for sure is that we live and breathe professional wrestling. Our war with the JAS is gonna end in final battle. He also issued an open challenge for anyone to fight him on Rampage, saying pro wrestling is about to make a serious statement. 
So look, this was convoluted, but it simultaneously made a fair amount of sense. Like Regal teaching them a lesson in some ways works, but to teach that lesson by costing Mox the title and giving it to MJF in order to teach that lesson, that is nonsensical. Look, AEW tried to figure out a way to give Mox an excuse to drop the title, to put it on MJF, to extricate Regal from AEW, and keep the BCC together, which we thought there was a possibility that would implode. There are certainly far worse ways that this could have been accomplished, but there's also far better ways that it could have been executed as well. Given the circumstances and the end results, MJF is champion, Mox emerging as the vocal leader, the BCC-JAS feud, we hope finally ending at final battle. All those are positives, no matter how we ultimately got there or how convoluted the journey to get there was. That said, there was really no reason for AEW to take their fans, which are smart fans, let's not forget. The AEW fan base is not a bunch of casuals. They know what's going on. They know all the news around William Regal and Tony Khan and AEW have used the smart fans being knowledgeable about storylines to kind of avoid doing some convoluted stuff that other promotions like WWE may need to do for a more casual fan base. But there was really no need to go this deep into the weeds about the entire thing. Fans know that William Regal is going to AEW and he's leaving AEW. Fans know William Regal is going to WWE and the circumstances of him leaving AEW. And they really could have just made it as simple as Regal turned on the BCC, he helped MJF, and then MJF proved, hey, you're evil, I'm even more evil because I'm turning on you too. And therefore, Regal has no reason to come back to AEW because the BCC doesn't want him because he turned his back on them, and then MJF turned his back on Regal, so he has nowhere else to land, so he's gone and he's not coming back to the promotion. That's really all they needed to do here. Don't forget, before they involved Regal in this entire thing, they already knew, Tony Khan already knew he was leaving. So they didn't have to go this far and this convoluted. And I think the way that Mox kind of no-sold it and didn't respond at the end really showed you that he's just like, look, this doesn't make any sense. Let's just move on from this entire thing. And Regal, the way he explained himself in that promo, yeah, it really didn't make sense when you kind of go back and think about it. So yes, you know, just to kind of wrap this all up and so we can move on. The I don't want to say the ends justify the means, but we got where we needed to go. Again, with MJF as champion, Mox losing the title without losing it clean, and the BCC staying together with Mox as that new vocal leader. Was it the cleanest way to get there? Absolutely not. Should it have been done better, given the amount of time that AEW had to concoct something? Absolutely. Could it have been worse? It absolutely could have been worse. So that's kind of where we'll put a bow on the entire thing. And hopefully, especially after final battle this weekend, we don't need to talk about this ever again. It will be very curious to see what happens with Mox, Hangman Page. Clearly, that's a feud that's building, one would presume, for their next uh, pay-per-view coming up in early 2023. And then what happens with Brian Danielson and MJF? It seems like Danielson's going to be that top challenger 
once uh, MJF beats Ricky Starks. Again, a match that could happen in the first pay-per-view of 2023, or if they do some special shows uh, in early 2023 in January. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, And then really, where does everything go? We'll have to find out, of course. But for now, we'll put a bow on it and we'll come back to it at another time. On Rampage, the acclaimed came out for an interview with a really weak rap from Max Caster. He goes through waves with his rhymes. Like sometimes they're fantastic and they'll hit two or three in a row. And then sometimes you're just not good at all. And he'll go like a month without cutting a good rap or anything like that. Uh, Anthony Bowen said Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal can't cut the line for a title match, given there's someone else referring to FTR that's been waiting. Gun Club, then Jarrett and Lethal came out in succession on the ramp. Then FTR walked past both teams into the ring. They just shook hands with the acclaimed. And that was the entire build to a tag team championship match that FTR has been waiting to get as number one contenders for three quarters of the year. That was horrendous. So also on Rampage, we had Jarrett and Lethal against Private Party. Lethal ate Silly String, but dodged a 450. The referee got distracted. That opened the door for a lethal injection Russian leg sweep combination with Jarrett and Lethal winning. And I'm just trying to figure out who wanted this match and who thinks Jarrett and Lethal deserve to be atop the tag team division in AEW. Complete joke. So we'll go back to Dynamite. The tag team championship was on the line. This was the main event, the acclaimed defending against FTR. Caster's rap was better, still not great. Bowens caught Dax Harwood with a neckbreaker over his knee. FTR caught Bowens with a spike pile driver for a near fall. Caster speared Cash Wheeler during a double team move to save Bowens before acclaimed hit an assisted Casadora cutter. Acclaimed prevented Big Rig. Wheeler prevented Acclaimed from hitting at themselves. Caster got run into the ring post. Then he ate a big rig for a false finish broken by Bowens. Dax randomly like flipped himself off the ropes outside. Cash randomly jumped out of another corner for no clear reason. Bowens hit a rival on Cash, but he dodged the mic drop. Cash hit Caster with three lariats and a powerbomb. But when he tried a jackknife cover, Caster rolled through and caught his legs for the one, two, three to retain the titles. Thought it was a great match. The only gripe was Dax just eliminating himself from the finish and never getting back in the ring. He was out there for like like four minutes, just laying there without taking an offensive move. So that was really strange. Acclaimed uh, asked for a scissoring after the bell and FTR participated. Gun Club taunted them from backstage and then opened presents for them. And in those presents was a challenge from the Briscoes for a dog collar match at final battle. This is the one match for final battle that I was completely okay with there being zero build for, given they've already put on two great matches this year, a third doesn't need much explanation, and the Briscoes can't be on AEW television, but they still could have maybe done something through social media instead of it being so surprising and so sudden here. Regardless, I was fine with it in this special circumstance, and really, this is the only actual reason to order Final Battle. I most likely won't be ordering it, but I will try to watch before next week's show. I don't see any situation in which the FTR uh, team doesn't beat the Briscoes and move forward. Clearly, they're in the Gun Club feud. So FTR beats the Briscoes in the main event of this show. Then they feud with Gun Club and you see what happens going forward from there. Otherwise, I don't really see the point of Gun Club being the thorn in FTR side for this extended of a period of time. Now, regarding the Dynamite match, I was indeed surprised Acclaimed won this clean, and props to FTR for putting them over that way. It really does establish Acclaimed as like legitimate champions who can go toe-to-toe with basically anyone. It was a worthy main event, the best match on the show, a solid four stars and an A-. I might actually go a bit higher on a second watch 
but I almost never watched TV matches twice. And the way the finish transpired, that bothered me and it did have me go down from the 4-2-5 to the 4, but still, very fun match. On Rampage, Darby Allen fought Cole Carter. Darby beat Nick Camerata with a bat before the bell and eventually won with a hammerlock-style scorpion death drop and the coffin drop. Darby later cut a promo saying he wanted to go after the TNT title now that all of his personal scores were settled. Darby challenged Joe with Sting and Wardlow banned from ringside. The match was whatever, but this was probably Darby's best promo in maybe ever in AEW. I loved it. I loved what he did talking into the mirror. It was annoying that they had another promo on Dynamite that he basically repeated the exact same stuff, but in a different venue. It was really odd. But the promo we got on Rampage from Darby Allen loved it. It was the most believable he's ever looked and sounded, in my opinion, once he's been in this company. On Rampage, Juice Robinson cut a taped promo to challenge Samoa Joe for the ROH TV title at Final Battle. This was the entire build for a pay-per-view match. Again, I excused it with the Briscoes, but what the hell are we doing here? I know that, that people don't want ROH stuff on TV, but if you're building for a title match, you can do a segment on Rampage for it, not just a little promo like this. So we'll move to Dynamite. Uh, the TNT Championship was on the line. Samoa Joe, Darby Allen, as we mentioned. Joe beat the shit out of Darby outside and literally threw him off the ring apron. Darby basically sold a concussion, like he didn't move, his eyes were closed. Yet the trainer in kayfabe allowed him to wake up, return to the ring, beat the 10 count, and continue wrestling. Darby rebounded a, a coffin drop outside, plus his flip over cutter and a code red inside. Joe gave him an STO, but Darby bit his face. When he then went for a coffin drop, Joe caught him you know, flying on the landing, caught him into a coquina clutch, which was a counter for the knockout win and retention. Darby rose after the bell. He pushed Joe only to eat a headbutt, a muscle buster onto an upturned skateboard, and then a chokehold that was only broken when Wardlow made the save. The match was decent enough, but the finish was a blast. And it was exactly the way you have Joe beat Darby, given his finisher opens a door for that submission counter. Plus the muscle buster onto the skateboard, like it was gnarly. And I say this all the time when it comes to Darby Allen. It's like, I can't believe he took that spot, but it was also completely unnecessary for him to take that spot. Just do a regular muscle buster and then choke the guy out. Why are we like actively trying to end this guy's career earlier by having him take a muscle buster, which is already a dangerous move onto an upturned skateboard. I mean, it just doesn't really make a shred of sense here, uh, but it was quite a sight. The whole thing worked. And this was easily the best that Joe has looked thus far in AEW. In fact, it's not even close. This is the best he's looked in AEW. On Rampage, Soraya did her uh, sit down interview with Renee Paquette. She said she got chills wrestling again and said it was a huge deal that the women got three matches on full gear. She said it was great for Jamie Hayter to win the title, but she wants it herself. And the whole thing was literally 90 seconds. It didn't accomplish anything and we didn't learn anything. So over on Dynamite, Jamie Hayter got her interview with Tony Schiavone. She was all dressed up and looked completely different. Hater said the winner of a match coming up on Rampage could fight her for the AEW title. And this went one minute and 20 seconds. So I'm so glad that she got to say absolutely nothing in a sit-down interview when she could have said absolutely nothing in a stand-up interview that lasted about the same time or could have lasted about the same time last week. Don't promote a sit-down interview. Give me two shitty questions where I learn absolutely nothing about the wrestler, their intentions, or really anything going forward. At least with Soraya, she's like, yeah, I'm going to go after the title. Jamie Hayter's like, why don't these people fight and the winner can fight me? I didn't learn shit about her. 
The whole point of a sit-down interview is to learn someone's motivations, their goals, uh, to get insight into their character. Jamie Hayter remains a really good wrestler who roomed with Tony Storm once during the pandemic and is now champion. That's all we know about her. On Dynamite, Soraya got even more mic time backstage with Britt Baker saying Soraya got the biggest win of her career and it'll never happen again. Baker said Soraya got handled in a match with AEW's top women's wrestler in her return bout. Baker then handed Soraya a ticket saying she should find a tag team partner to fight them at the Forum in Los Angeles on January 11th. And I found that to be an extremely interesting situation because, you know, we do mention Sasha Banks a lot here on the podcast. And I don't want to be one of those folks who brings up Sasha at every turn. But, you know, we are looking for situations both in WWE and AEW where it may seem like Sasha Banks returns to professional wrestling. She is one of the most popular women's wrestlers in the world. And there were not one, but two spots on Dynamite that made me specifically think about Sasha Banks. One of them here was clearly Soraya saying she needs a partner or or Soraya being told that she'll need a partner for this match in Los Angeles at the Forum. And if you're going to do that match, Baker and Hater the champion against Soraya, your biggest women signee, you know, at least recently, and a mystery opponent, unless it's some other free agent or some other contracted talent elsewhere, I legitimately cannot think of anyone else who could be used in this spot other than Sasha Banks. Chris Statlander is nowhere near ready to return from her knee injury. Rio, you could say, is super popular and fans would be really excited for her to show up. But again, you don't promote a match a month in advance for Rio. I don't really see it being Thunder Rosa. It would make sense in kayfabe because of everything that has gone on with Thunder Rosa and Britt Baker and to some extent, Jamie Hayter as well. But, you know, last we heard about Thunder Rosa, she doesn't know when she's going to be able to return to the ring. You could possibly say Tony Storm, given last we saw of her, she has those facial injuries. So they could keep her out of action for a month and then she makes her return on that show. But again, I don't really see AEW doing a month-long build for a regular women's tag team match in Los Angeles with Rio, Rosa, or Storm. So it sure as hell feels like it could be something special. And if not, it's a huge red herring. Now, adding to this speculation was a report that came out right before we taped this show on Thursday from PW Insider. And the report is that Sasha Banks will make her next wrestling appearance at New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom 17 in early January. Now, it is completely unknown what the circumstances are, you know, of this entire situation. We do know that Banks has made a number of trademark filings recently. Uh, Mercedes Monet, Monet Talks, Bank Monet, Statement Maker, and she registered all of this to a company under her own name, which makes a lot of sense. We also know that she teased the idea of wrestling Kyrie, the former Kyrie Sane, who is now in stardom. And she has teased the idea of wrestling her. Stardom is now owned by New Japan, and they are starting to kind of put some women's matches on the men's shows. So it does make total sense that Kyrie could potentially have a match on the show. And once that match ends, Sasha Banks comes out and challenges her, and now you have a match. But what makes this interesting, of course, is that it seems, as of right now, 
Sasha Banks is still under contract to WWE. Both her and Naomi still have their profiles up on WWE.com. They were pulled for a period of time, but then they were brought back to WWE.com. And we also know that there was a long period of time where Sasha was negotiating her release and probably for Naomi as well with WWE. But then as like that news story was kind of propagating, and then that, by the way, was when she was pulled off of intros to shows and her name wasn't being mentioned on TV and her profile wasn't up on WWE.com. You couldn't search for her name. Once that all kind of fizzled out and we stopped hearing about that, and also once Vince McMahon left and Triple H got the book and and got all this control, all those appearances uh, and um, the links to Sasha Banks and all that returned. So there's a number of different ways that this all could be transpiring. And the truth is, we just don't know what the answer is right now. Uh, There's one uh, way, one one theory, perhaps, uh, that Sasha is contracted to WWE and will remain contracted to WWE, but perhaps as part of uh, a new deal that she's worked out with the company, she is allowed to wrestle elsewhere under a different moniker, or perhaps even under her own name. And that certainly would make sense here. There is the deal already being worked with WWE in New Japan, where WWE signed Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows uh, to be part of the OC with AJ Styles, yet Carl Anderson still holds an NJPW title and will be defending it, we presume, at Wrestle Kingdom 17. So there's already going to be a WWE talent on that show. Uh, Another circumstance, of course, could be that Sasha's contract with WWE is running out on January 1st. 2023. And therefore, she suddenly then becomes open to do extra work, in which case she can do the New Japan show. And it would make a lot of sense why AEW just recently started promoting a women's surprise partner for Soraya at a Dynamite episode in Los Angeles at the Forum. That kind of all comes together. Let's not forget uh, Sasha Banks. I'm not trying to say that Sasha Banks is the one who injured Soraya, but Sasha Banks was working with Soraya when she got injured the last time she was in a huge depression about it, reportedly. And Soraya obviously told her, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Sasha was one of the first people that Soraya texted to kind of let her know that she had been cleared and was returning to wrestling. So there's clearly a relationship between those two there. Uh, So I don't know really what's going to happen. It could be that Sasha is going to work the show and then show up at the Royal Rumble. But then you say, well, If WWE is okay with her working elsewhere, that's cool. But after her being off TV since like May, why would they allow her first appearance back to be in New Japan and not at the Royal Rumble? Why wouldn't they at least try to say, hey, we're going to give you a lot of like flexibility, do whatever you want, but you can't have your first appearance back be somewhere other than WWE. So there's a lot kind of here and I've said for a long time, I've maintained this, that when she initially walked away from WWE with Naomi, I said, oh, it makes all the sense in the world that she's going to wind up on AEW. But when that, when news of her release did not come, and then she got added back to WWE.com and all that, I just was kind of thinking, I was like, if you're watching AEW and you see the way the women are being booked, and yes, the division has made improvements recently, minor improvements recently by getting a little bit more time to actually wrestle and getting a little bit more time for non-wrestling segments. But again, they're relegated to, you know, 90 seconds, 80 seconds for a sit-down interview and all this types of stuff. If you're seeing all that, 
And you see what WWE is doing with Triple H back in charge. Triple H, by the way, the guy who ran NXT and took you from relative unknown to major star and you presume is going to do the same thing with the women on the main roster in WWE right now. And by the way, there's a lot of new women on the main roster in WWE. So Sasha wouldn't be coming back just to fight Charlotte and Becky, you know, and Bailey and Asuka that she can fight. Obviously Bianca Belair too, but uh, Rhea Ripley and Dakota Kai and um, EO Sky and uh, Tegan Knox is back and so on and so forth. When you have all of that kind of momentum behind the WWE women's division, it seems kind of strange that you would say, okay, I'll just go to AEW and work with like Britt Baker, Soraya, Tony Storm, and Jamie Hayter and, and have that be the group. Especially when it seems like WWE is being more flexible now to allow people to work elsewhere. Clearly the stuff with Carl Anderson, they're allowing Shinsuke Nakamura to wrestle the great Muda. I believe that's pro wrestling Noah that's gonna take place under. So they're letting that happen. So clearly WWE is is expanding their um, allowances for wrestlers to do work outside of the confines of WWE. In fact, when Brian Danielson was renegotiating that contract before he went to AEW, they decided to allow him to do the G1 with New Japan. So Sasha Banks, in terms of importance to women's division that Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson was to the men's division, she would be granted that same type of allowance one would expect. So, you know, if she does this show, it's going to be super exciting in a vacuum on its own. But it's also going to raise that question. Well, what does this mean for her going forward? What name does she appear under? And if she does appear under a name other than Sasha Banks, is that because she's no longer with WWE? Or is that because WWE is allowing her to work outside of the company, but only under a different moniker? These are things we don't know. These are questions that we're asking, uh, but this is the appropriate time to ask them, not just because of this, but also because of something else that happened on Dynamite. And this is not as direct, but it's something that I took note of as well. So we had a six-woman tag team match, Jade Cargill and the Baddies against Kiara Hogan, Sky Blue, and Madison Rain. When this match started, Jade initially decided to tag out. And Taz, I am not exaggerating, literally said five times that Jade is the, quote, boss. And that's how it goes. She's like, she's the boss, so she doesn't have to start. That's how things go when you're the boss and Jade's the boss and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, to hammer home the boss five different times there, that really kind of like seems to tell you something, right? Now, Kiara was featured as the babyface here. Cargill manhandled her. She actually had an awesome choke spinebuster. I think it's probably the number one move I've ever seen Jade Cargill do. So credit to her for that. Jade then hit Rain with Jaded for the expected win. And Kiara does seem to be the next TNT title challenger, sorry, TBS title challenger. This was more entertaining than I expected given the booking. AEW, it seems, is counting tag and trios wins as part of Jade's record, apparently. That's kind of silly, uh, but there's nothing past this. Just a really nice spot for the women, I thought, on the show. But going back to that Sasha Banks situation, we talked about uh, Lil Bow Wow or Bow Wow, I guess, in this feud with Jade and... He's obviously not going to fight her, so he's going to need a proxy. He does have a relationship with Snoop Dogg. Everyone knows that Snoop is Sasha's cousin. So now we have two different, you know, avenues of connection for Sasha Banks to end up in AEW. One is potentially as Soraya's surprise partner. One is potentially as Bow Wow's like proxy to fight Jade Cargill. You may say, well, why the hell would they bring Sasha in to fight 
in the mid-card women's feud against Jade. Jade's undefeated. That's why. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. They also would seemingly have pretty decent chemistry just because Sasha works really well with bigger women in the ring, especially strong women. So that makes sense. And of course, the Soraya thing I already mentioned. So there's now two different situations with uh, AEW where it kind of seems like Sasha may go there. We have the reports of her going to New Japan. And there's also been some circumstances in WWE where we keep kind of expecting there to be a surprise in the women's division or something to happen. Uh, I think Sasha Banks' name was actually uttered on television a couple weeks ago, if memory serves. And I, I tweeted about that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. They haven't said her name in a really long time. So she's being mentioned on TV. She's back in the package. She's on the website. The Royal Rumble is coming up. If you're going to return her, there's no better place to do it than the Royal Rumble. I mean, she's not going to work for everybody. So something's going to come to a head here and we will find out what it is sooner than later. On Rampage, Keith Lee said his conversations with Swerve Strickland were ongoing when Shane Taylor from Ring of Honor asked Keith why he keeps leaving family behind. Taylor said their business was far from over and he wanted a tag team match at Final Battle if Keith could find some help. Swerve then showed up. Keith asked if he can even count on him. Swerve took off his glasses and Keith walked away. For real, this was the build to a pay-per-view match. Why would Lee, who's a smart guy, both in kayfabe and reality, believe that he can trust Swerve again? Why is a random dude showing up on TV for the first time and making a pay-per-view match challenge in a non-existent storyline? What the fuck was this? It didn't make a shred of sense. We'll stay with Rampage. The All-Atlantic Championship was on the line again. Orange Cassidy fighting QT Marshall in a lumberjack match. Orange hit beach break on the ring apron in a nice spot. It was chaotic at ringside. Orange splashed a bunch of guys. Penelope Ford and Kip Sabian, I forgot Kip existed. Uh, They came out to distract Orange and push him ass first off the top rope into a diamond cutter by QT for a false finish. Cassidy recovered immediately, then hit orange punch and beach break for the win. Then he did a tope suicida on Sabian and they brawled up the ramp. The lumberjacks then started brawling for no reason whatsoever. The lights went out, they came back on. House of Black appeared, they cleaned house. Buddy Matthews and Brody King were gonna hit Dante's Inferno on one guy. Malachi Black stopped them, so they hit it on Serpentico instead. Then the guy that Malachi didn't let them beat up, they beat the shit out of outside the ring anyway, along with the other Lumberjacks to end the show. Like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say about any of this. The title match was whatever. I mean, QT Marshall's in a main event. What are we doing? House of Black, they continue to look great. I wasn't particularly excited by it. That's really it. So we go to Dynamite. Orange told Kip he didn't need to interfere. All he had to do was ask for a title match. Sabian said he's hurt. So Cassidy told him, find someone else. And so there's going to be someone else fighting Orange Cassidy. The whole All-Atlantic storyline with Orange, I cannot find it in me to care one iota. It just, it's not working. On Dynamite, Black said it was time for them to put down the corruption in AEW with Julia Hart saying that the crime committed by people, I guess, is treason and King saying the punishment is extermination. Black then issued some blanket challenge. Like I love all of these guys and I like Julia too. It's just so tough to get excited about anything when everything they're doing now feels aimless. Like their return was hot, but they didn't return with like a goal in mind or a specific person or a group of people that they're feuding against. So like do something here. I'm sure it'll come up sooner than later, but I need more than what we're getting. And then on Rampage, Athena fought Danny Moe. Athena won a squash with a falling code breaker and then beat this girl's ass outside. 
uh, drilled her with a knee into the steel steps before feigning like she would punch Aubrey Edwards a second time, but ultimately she didn't. I continue to like this gimmick with Athena. Like she's really the lone bright spot on Rampage. And one of the few things I actually care about seeing week to week, it's just too bad that it's all for Ring of Honor. I assume she's going to beat Mercedes Martinez in the women's title match, but I don't even know if that's actually what's going to happen. But if I was AEW, if I was Tony Khan, I would definitely strap up Athena. Uh, Mercedes, she's been injured for a long period of time, hasn't been able to wrestle. Totally fine as a transitional champion. Athena actually raises the rent. You get excited when she has a championship and she is in the ring. So that is it for AEW this week. Obviously, ROH Final Battle is coming up Saturday afternoon. I don't think I will be watching it live. It's possible. I don't think that's going to happen. I will try to watch it, or at least the key matches on the show, uh, before next week's Thursday episode talking NXT and AEW so we can break down that and kind of, you know, some of the fallout and maybe what it has to do or how it pertains to AEW storylines, particularly when it comes to uh, JAS and BCC. I think that's probably where the greatest impact will be when it comes to AEW. So again, we'll try to talk about it on Thursday show. If for some reason I do watch it though, uh, we will do it as part of the instant analysis with NXT deadline on Saturday. But as of right now, at least that is not the plan. Speaking of NXT, let's go ahead and slide into that. We will first discuss everything that happened on NXT itself, and then we will give you our NXT deadline ultimate preview. So let's go to the TV show first. Julius Creed got his knee cleared backstage when Ivy Nile asked the trainer, what do you think of his ribs? The Creeds were upset that she asked and she just said, I'm trying to protect him. The trainer found swelling on Julius's ribs and then rescinded his clearance. So Brutus got mad at Ivy. Bryson Montana, who I'd never heard of before, was in the ring uh, with the camera focused on him. When out of nowhere, Sangha just ran through him. Then Javier Bernal entered for his match only to already see Indusher in the ring. So he just sold an injury and left, which was pretty freaking funny. Uh, They said they only wanted to fight the Creeds at 100% and therefore declined their challenge and said, we will not fight you at NXT deadline. That sent the Creeds out from backstage. They were super angry and they had to get restrained by officials. Later backstage, Bernal got called out by Mackenzie Mitchell for looking over his shoulder, scared of Indusher. He called her biased. So Mackenzie asked Ikamanjiro what he thought of Javi. He called Bernal a big body chicken. So Javi stormed off. I assume... They're going to fight next week, and that's a good person for Bernal to get a win over. I said last week that the Creeds and Indusher match, it just didn't make any sense for Deadline. It's a really strong TV main event. It's not something that you would put on a premium live event when there's really been no significant feud ongoing between the teams other than they're both big and they want to fight each other. So I was pleased that it was pulled from the show and replaced by a better tag team match that we'll discuss a little bit later. Bernal remains like a total delight in this chicken shit role. It just continuously works. And the way he and Mackenzie Mitchell play off each other, it's pretty great. Uh, Tony D'Angelo fought Zion Quinn. This was a shocking squash over a big dude who seems to have potential in Quinn, but maybe he's just not putting it together. D'Angelo hit a new backdrop style Uranagi for the win in like a minute. Tony said he doesn't have any ring rust and he's focused on Wesley and the North American title, given he already took D'Angelo out. Anyone who saw that match knows Tony's knee just buckled and Wesley had nothing to do with it, but I digress. Uh, Wesley told D'Angelo he'd fight him after he took care of Dijak, who attacked him last week. D'Angelo refused, so Dijak appeared on the Titantron, saying he was impressed Wesley is back after taking the knee to the jaw last week, but he needs to keep his name out of his mouth. Stax then tried attacking Wesley, but he did this really cool inventive like backwards slide out of the ring between the bottom and middle rope, and that ended the entire thing. I wish I had some deep opinion on this. I don't. It was fine. Dijak, he just remains somewhat unimpressive since his return. 
Like, I don't really get what they're going for with, with this gimmick. Uh, D'Angelo, he looks solid, I guess. But he was also kind of gassed a little bit. Clearly uh, not used to wrestling uh, to that level recently. Uh, Briggs and Jensen fought Idris Anofe and Malik Blade. Sol Rucka was dancing in a TikTok at an NXT live event. And when we saw these teams get into some type of big argument for an unknown reason, and that set up the match. So they gave us a reason for the match, but they didn't actually tell us why they were arguing. Odyssey Jones came out with Anofe and Blade. During the match, Keanu James' assistant dropped off a letter for Briggs and Jensen. After some big moves by the faces, Von Wagner came out to battle Jones for really no discernible reason in the moment. Anofe got distracted and he ate a spinning heel kick plus a high-low move for the loss. The faces seemed to make good. They dapped each other up after the bell. So we've got to have at least one of Briggs and Jensen or Toxic Attraction get rid of the high-low finisher at least for my sanity, if they're all going to remain in NXT. There was nothing special about this match. Later, Fallon Henley was angry that Jensen got VIP tickets to be James's guest for Deadline. So we'll see what happens on Saturday with that. Uh, Hank Walker fought Charlie Dempsey. Walker last week approached Dempsey saying he heard his comments. And while Walker hasn't been training for this all his life, he's been working hard and wants to earn Dempsey's respect. So that led to the match. Dempsey countered Walker's power with technical wrestling. Suddenly, Drew Gulak appeared on the ramp. Dempsey eventually grabbed Walker's leg, wrenching him into a single leg grab that he pressed into the back of his head with a forearm hook, like around the face, and he got the submission win. Gulak shook his head and then left. That was a really nice, simple piece of booking here. A good look for Dempsey to get a win and an easy feud set up with Gulak, who is one of the coaches down there now. It would be really cool if NXT decided to do like a catch point faction, like they had in Evolve. I'm not really sure that's in the cards. It's probably just going to be a one-on-one match that really puts Dempsey over as being a top-tier technical wrestler. Nevertheless, definitely interested to see what they're doing. Uh, Walker was also positioned as far less experienced, so the loss for him was completely excusable. Scripps got a new vignette reciting a poem in a dark room as he wrote on a notepad. He said he grew up somewhere where people judged others on what they see, not on what they heard. So that's the explanation, I guess, for the mask and the gimmick. I mean, look, Reggie's entertaining in the ring. He has a chance to develop into something. But if they keep him in that mask, I just don't exactly see how they can make that work. Some tweaks and scripts can probably work, just not as it was presented last week. There was another vignette for Lyra Valkyra who talked about being swift and decisive like a bird. She said she would debut next week. So I guess we're gonna see what that looks like next week. So that's everything that happened on the NXT TV show that did not really directly have to do with NXT Deadline. So let's go ahead and break down NXT Deadline Ultimate Preview style. There are going to be five matches on the card, including the two Iron Survivor challenges. So we'll start with the low card. We'll work our way up to what may be uh, the main event or at least the biggest title match on the show. Uh, Sophia Hale was crazy excited that she got a match with Isla Dawn on NXT. Duke Hudson tried to get Andre Chase to tell her not to wrestle, but when he let her, Hudson second-guessed him which sent Chase into a fit of rage. He stormed out of the room. Later, Dawn was being spooky, yet she said she was ready to fight. So we got Hale against Dawn. Isla quickly put Thea in a really unique headlock, dominated her with two powerful clothesline moves and got the win. It really wasn't that impressive, and I know Isla Dawn can wrestle better than that. But also Thea Hale is a neophyte, total green rookie, so there's only probably so much that they could actually do. After the bell, the screens flickered and smoke filled the ringside area. Before Alba Fire attacked, they brawled and got separated. The fire dodging poison mist from Dawn. That hit a referee in the face. The post-match I thought was really strong. The match itself was more about giving Isla a win and continuing the Chase U storyline. 
So I put a note that the segment was so intense, it felt like it should have been a deadline match. And then about 30 minutes later, they announced a deadline match, Alba Fire against Isla Dawn. And this is impossible to predict because there's only really two ways this can go. Either Alba Fire is actually gonna get called up to the main roster and that debut could happen really at any time, but given the time of year, it would seem more likely to happen during the Royal Rumble itself. Either she's going to get called up or she's not. If she is getting called up, then she loses this match, puts over Isla Dawn, who is staying in NXT, and now Isla Dawn has a lot of momentum with her character and she's a force and she beat Alba and so on and so forth. Or Alba is staying in NXT. And if so, you cannot have her lose three times to Mandy Rose and then go ahead and lose to Isla Dawn as well. So my prediction, as my prediction has been for months now, when it comes to (laughs) Alba Fire, is she either wins the match or leaves. I said that about Mandy Rose. Didn't happen. The only way to make that make sense is to have her also lose here if she's getting called up. So I have to believe that Alba Fire is getting called up to the main roster. And therefore, I am picking Isla Dawn to win. But... (laughs) (laughs) I can't predict any of her matches right, so it's probably going to be the exact opposite, but I can only do what I can do. Uh, Pretty Deadly was dressed as Santa Claus and an elf sitting on each other's laps to tell a Christmas story that they wrote themselves. Unlike the Day in a Life like diary video they did, this wasn't really particularly funny. It was just kind of braggadocious. When they hugged after it was over, New Day's music hit out of absolutely nowhere. They sold it incredibly well with purely shocked faces. The crowd popped huge. Xavier Woods said the story they wanted to tell was being Deadly's opponents at deadline. Of course, the champions took exception to that and attacked, but New Day got up on them, smashed presents on their heads, and super kicked them off the apron while dancing with the titles. This was such a nice surprise. Both New Day showing up, the match happening at deadline, it's all great. It was odd that Deadly didn't have challengers all this time. I think I mentioned that last week. Now it makes sense why. It's clear WWE feels they need like a little bit of main roster flavor when they do the NXT premium live events, maybe to help them draw a little bit. And that's perfectly fine. One-off moves like this are only positives for the fans. The only minor gripe I had is that this didn't happen a couple of weeks ago. So we could have a couple like comedy segments between these four guys on NXT that would really sell the match and also be super entertaining. But whatever, we're getting this all happening at deadline. Now, it would be awesome if New Day won and did like a month excursion in NXT with the titles. The problem is there's not really a tag team worthy of beating them that's on that roster unless you literally have Pretty Deadly come back and beat them. Like you could make an argument for Indusure because they have the size advantage, but no one wants to see New Day lose to Indusure. The creeds are great, but that would almost feel a little bit too over the top. So I'm sure Deadly figures out a way to cheat and retain the titles. It'll be a damn fun match. Also, let's not forget Kofi Kingston has already been announced for Royal Rumble. Not that being an NXT Tag Team Champion would preclude him from doing that. You could have New Day win the titles here and keep them all the way to the next NXT Premium Live event, which was announced also right before we taped the show, NXT Vengeance Day, which is airing on, I believe it's February 4th, a Saturday. Um, and it's not. It's actually not happening in Orlando, but rather in Charlotte, North Carolina. So they're not just doing a premium live event, they're doing the second premium live event that they're booking away from Orlando since the start of the pandemic. So you had 
take over Portland in 2020. That was the last one they did before the start of the pandemic. Then stand and deliver last year, which they did on WrestleMania weekend. This is going to be the first NXT premium live event that they do not around a WWE pay-per-view away from Orlando since Portland in 2019, uh, 2020, I'm sorry, three years ago, it'll be. It'll be a one week shy of three years by the time Vengeance Day actually begins. So there is, you could definitely make an argument. There's a good reason for New Day to win these titles and hold them all the way to that show then have someone beat the New Day for the titles on that show. I just don't really think that is exactly gonna happen. It seems like way too long to book basically two months plus of New Day as champions, having them go to Orlando consistently and not having them on WWE television. Though it is also fair to say, what exactly would they do on WWE TV? There's not much for them. They can't contend for the titles anymore. There's only so many tag teams on SmackDown. The division's barren though. So if you don't have their star power, who exactly do you have? So they could win the titles. I think it's definitely possible, uh, but my prediction is going to be pretty deadly retaining the titles. Let's move to the Women's Iron Survivor Challenge. Uh, Cora Jade, Zoe Stark, Kiana James, Roxanne Perez, and a fifth woman to be determined on NXT. There were vignettes done leading into the match with all the women who were already qualified. Most of them were really well done. Jade and Stark had ones that were really striking visually. James's was the same old shit. Roxy's was about her getting more serious. Nothing that special. So we got the wild card match, which was Indy Hartwell, Wendy Chu, and Fallon Henley in a triple threat. Indy gave thumbs up to the crowd during her entrance, which to me was a nod to Dexter Loomis. Toxic Attraction watched everything from backstage. Indy was on top for most of the match. She caught Chu running with a spine buster. Chu then grabbed Indy, who had Henley on the ropes for a combined German suplex. Wendy hit Fallon with her top rope Vader bomb in the corner, but Indy pushed her out of the ring and hit a forearm to the back of Henley's head for the win. If the tag teams are gonna stop with high-low finishers, we gotta get wrestlers stopping with the forearm to the back of the head finisher. It's just, if you're gonna have one person do it, okay. There's like three people in WWE who do it right now. It's ridiculous. Uh, Booker T initially said that Indy cheated. Vic Joseph clarified that Hartwell was opportunistic. Toxic decided to go watch the match at deadline when suddenly Indy stormed right up to Mandy Rose in the lounge and said in no uncertain terms that she would be the one to end her title reign. Hartwell was definitely the right winner and the right choice as the fifth entrant into the Iron Survivor Challenge, no question. But I wouldn't have been mad if it was Wendy Chu. Uh, But, you know, Indy does walk into this match as one of the two clear favorites, the other one being Roxanne Perez. And either one of them who win this match, I mean, we've been talking about Mandy Rose losing this title for four, five, six months probably at this point. And we keep thinking that it's gonna come and it keeps not happening. Well, there's now two opportunities for Mandy Rose to lose the title. One of them is Vengeance Day in February. The other is Stand and Deliver WrestleMania weekend. And I don't exactly know which direction they're going to go. They could have Indy Hartwell win this match and give her that boost of being the first ever women's iron survivor. And then she goes and fights Mandy Rose and loses. And that gives her a reason to go to the main roster. Or they have Roxanne Perez, who really is out of the younger women in NXT right now. She has the highest ceiling. And you have her be the first Iron Survivor. Though, when you look at this group, you say, man, how is she going to survive past Indy Hartwell and Zoe Stark, both bigger, stronger, um, not necessarily better. I mean, Zoe Stark's a better wrestler at this point in her career, but, but just more believable, I guess, than a more diminutive Roxanne Perez, 
You have Cora Jade, who seemingly could cheat and do all that type of stuff. Obviously, the thorn in Perez's side. Really, the only person who should not win this match is Kiana James. Anyone else would be okay, but it's really tough to kind of make a pick. I'm going to go ahead and go with Roxanne Perez winning this by a slim, slim margin, because I do think it could be Indy Hartwell, but they have been doing a lot of teasing on the main roster now with Johnny Gargano, Candice LeRae, and Dexter Loomis. I think Dexter appeared at an NXT live event with Indy. They obviously did that moment on NXT television uh, where the cops like found Dexter when he visited NXT like a few months ago. So it's kind of like they're clearly putting this all back together. And I don't know that you're going to do that and wait until like February or maybe even March or April to put them all together. It would make sense to do it in the coming month or so. And because of that, I'm going to have Roxanne Perez uh, win this. Don't forget, she kind of got screwed when she had her last title opportunity against Mandy Rose. So I have Perez winning this, Indy kind of coming in second, barely losing, kind of fulfilling the prophecy that everyone has said that she comes up short and she's just not there yet. And then perhaps leaving for the main roster at that point. So moving over to the men's Iron Survivor Challenge, you have Carmelo Hayes, JD McDonough, Grayson Waller, Joe Gacy, and one spot still to be filled. And they did that with another wild card triple threat match. Axiom against Andre Chase and Von Wagner. Duke Hudson gave Chase a huge pep talk backstage. The babyfaces teamed up until Wagner tossed Axiom out of the ring onto Chase. Chase later powerbombed Wagner out of the corner and then caught Axiom with a perfect double underhook sit-down powerbomb. Axiom tried to rear naked choke and triangle on Wagner. He broke it with a lifted powerbomb into Chase and a double underhook swinging slam. Chase did a combo DDT and an inverted DDT. Then he added a crossbody on Wagner with Axiom catching him with golden ratio for the win. This was a surprising little bit of a banger. I got to tell you, I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. I may not like Wagner, but he's a great foil for smaller more agile guys. He really works well with them. The best thing about the way they book him though in NXT is he somehow kept strong, but he actually loses matches. Like he is the one who gets pinned sometimes. And in WWE, especially historically, that almost never happens. So he still looks dominant, but he actually loses. Anyway, uh, Axiom and Chase were both tremendous in this match. Axiom was definitely the right call for the Iron Survivor Challenge. He's literally now the only babyface in the five-man match. And I got to tell you, he just continues to be impressive and, you know, eye-catching, really, when you watch him in the ring. It's it's really cool to see what he is doing on a week-to-week basis and how much more he is getting over as Axiom than he ever did as A-Kid previously. So then we move to the main event of NXT, which was the Grayson Waller effect. Waller backstage said no one on the roster can do what he does, so he's the favorite for the match. Mackenzie Mitchell was not buying his shit. Waller then in the ring ran down each of his challengers to kind of start his segment. And then he put himself over for literally being on Survivor, the TV show. Mello said he'll have the same energy in minute one as he will in minute 25. JD said Mello has been protected since he joined NXT and he's not ready for what's to come. And JD has the bigger gas tank. He's the one who's going to be able to last. Mello then took a shot at Waller saying, dude, you're not going to be able to last 25 minutes. She's got me saying, hey now! Uh, Gacy said his normal spooky type of shit. When Axiom spoke, he was talked about adaptability, you know, whatever. Waller acted like he fell asleep while Axiom was talking. Mello called him a nerd. Kind of, they kind of buried him. I mean, I know that that's what his gimmick is, but it wasn't necessarily the best way to do that. 
Uh, it did take a long time to get to the eventual brawl, which you knew was coming to end the segment, but they all got eventually to it with Waller hitting a tope onto the other four guys while still holding his phone doing the live stream, which was pretty cool. NXT ended just with a bunch of chaos. Uh, Waller is going to be really good. No question. The others here clearly have potential. But in this segment, Melo clearly shined above the rest of them. I'm not sure that this was the best possible go-home segment, but it did ultimately get the job done. So you look at the match, the five competitors, again, just like we did with the women's match, you kind of do a process of elimination. You see who can actually win, who makes sense to win, and who does not. Axiom makes zero sense to win this match. Uh, Joe Gacy also being someone who's already feuded extensively with Braun Breaker doesn't make sense for him. Same with JD McDonough. That leaves us with Carmelo Hayes or Grayson Waller. Grayson Waller hasn't held any gold and he hasn't really been heavily involved in any type of title feud to this point. And if he's going to be, well, guess what? It would actually make a lot of sense for him to probably feud with um, Wesley and the North American Championship much more then at this point to go all the way up and feud with Braun Breaker. So to me, it's obvious. You have the biggest star in the match, one of the biggest stars in the entire brand. Carmelo Hayes, it's your first ever Iron Survivor Challenge. Melo really should be the one to take the championship off Braun Breaker. This is a great way to put him in position to do it. So yeah, I have Carmelo Hayes winning the Men's Iron Survivor Challenge. I really don't think this one's that tough. It's, I think to me, a lot easier than the women's match. But you know there is a case you can make for J.D. McDonough, just given all of the stuff that he's talked about, him you know, knowing the human body and the way to, to maximize it in the match and all that type of stuff, him being, quote unquote, the smartest one in there, there is a case to be made for him. But for me, it's Mello or Waller. And I do have Mello ultimately winning the men's Iron Survivor Challenge. And that brings us to what I expect to be the main event of the show. But perhaps the men's Iron Survivor is, and this instead, is the... Uh, penultimate match on the card. The NXT Championship, Braun Breaker defending against Apollo Crews. Braun was back on the water fishing when Apollo asked to join him. They did some lighthearted trash talk with Breaker talking about the grind of being champion. They were excited. Crews caught a fish and were basically cordial through the end of the segment. And this was basically just a combination of the two video packages that we've seen the last couple of weeks. Breaker on the water and then Apollo Crews in the diner and both of them you know, meeting in the diner. It's just strange that this is presumably the main event of the show. It's at least the main title match, but it's only been built via videos outside the performance center. Now it's nowhere really near a strong enough build to make me as a viewer believe that there's going to be a title change. Even if Cruz is a legitimate challenger who would make sense to take the strap off of Breaker as someone who's been Intercontinental Champion on the main roster, obviously had a long run on SmackDown and Raw for Cruz to come down and beat him it wouldn't hurt Braun one iota, but it just really doesn't make sense for him to actually be that person in this spot with as weak of a build as this match has gotten. As I've said before, Braun's booking, it's been really boring as sin for months now, and his title reign coming to an end is long overdue. But when you have these two premium live events that they've now promoted, Vengeance Day in February, and then Stand and Deliver coming WrestleMania weekend, you have to make the move at one of those. You don't do it on NXT deadline when the Iron Survivor challenges are really supposed to be the highlight of the show. So hopefully they at least figure out how to make him more interesting again because just candidly, when we talk about all the matches on this card, I actually care about this least out of everything. You have the two Iron Survivor challenges. 
Pretty deadly against New Day. I'm just really curious to see how that goes. Albafire Isla Dawn, I think is going to be a great match. This is going to be a ton of fun in the ring. Like this is going to be a banger. This is going to be, you know, arguably the match of the night. It's very possible that it could be that, but I just don't care. They, they don't have me caring about Breaker anymore. I don't care about this Apollo Crews character. I don't even know what this Apollo Crews character is. So yeah, I'm just kind of underwhelmed at this going into NXT deadline. Now, we've broken down. Oh, I guess technically I didn't give you a prediction. Braun Breaker retains the title. That's my prediction. Now, we've broken down every match. I've given you some predictions for them. Let's move to our pre-show expectation grade for NXT deadline. Normally, I would let Vintage Chris Vanini go first and give his grade. He's not here. Uh, As far as all of you, the listeners, you will be able to vote and provide your pre-show expectation grade on Saturday, about one hour before NXT deadline begins. I will post a poll on our Twitter account at gettingovercast. You can provide your pre-show grade. And then once it goes off the air, I will post a second poll and you can provide your post-show grade, both of which I will read on our NXT deadline instant analysis podcast coming Saturday evening. But let's go to the Silver Kings pre-show expectation grade. I gotta say, I'm not particularly high on this uh, premium live event. Both of the Iron Survivor challenges, the rules are just so convoluted. I mean, it's an Iron Man match mixed with a penalty box, a point system counting falls, it's timed entry, you know, kind of Royal Rumble style to some degree. And, you know, maybe the booking is going to be so, you know, airtight that by the time we come out of it, we say, wow, those were total bangers. Love the match concept. Everything's perfect. Nothing needs to be changed. It just kind of feels like the penalty box in particular is one gimmick too far. It doesn't feel like that is needed for this particular match. Every other part of it makes sense really, except for that to a large degree. So I'm not overly enthusiastic about these being groundbreaking match, you know, stipulations, special matches, whatever you want to call them, going into the show. And they are the biggest part of NXT Deadline. You also wonder, the show's called NXT Deadline. Why didn't they just call these like Survivor Deadline matches? Or, you know, I don't exactly know what you would call it, but usually you try to name it something similar to what the show is being named. So that way it all kind of fits together. But maybe they wanted to avoid what Triple H, you know, the pitfall that Triple H said that WWE gets in so frequently is where the match becomes so big that they name the show after it. And then you know when it's coming every year and you kind of want to avoid that. However, it does seem like if you're going to do Iron Survivor challenges, doing them in December at the end of a year, it does make a lot of sense. So that's for me why I think it should have been a little bit more related, the name of the show and the name of the match. I digress. My point is, these matches, I'm not overly enthusiastic for them, even though I largely like the people competing in them, and I do think that they're going to be super entertaining. So you take that into consideration. Pretty Deadly versus New Day, again, a match with zero build, where I don't expect a title change. I think it's going to be very well wrestled. Is it going to be an absolute knockdown you know, banger? I don't know that that's going to be the case. Alba Fire and Isla Dawn, you have very minimal build for the match. Very little that the fans actually know about Isla Dawn. I think it's going to be tremendous in ring. So I do have high anticipation for that. And then again, we move to the NXT Championship match. I think it's going to be, again, very good in the ring. 
but I don't actually care that much about it. So my pre-show expectation grade for NXT deadline, is going to be a flat B. That's by the way, let's not forget a very good show, a premium live event coming up with a B. That means I was entertained for the better part of three hours and I liked what I got and I don't regret watching it. So it's a pre-show expectation of a B that also gives them a huge gap in which they can exceed my expectations. Not only just a little bit, right, by the Iron Survivor matches being good and making a lot of sense and, and, and forming together well, but also just the match quality could potentially blow me away and get it into an A range. So we start with a B, large ceiling, relatively limited floor, because I doubt it's going to be a bad show. But we come in with, you know, moderate expectations is the best way I can put it for NXT deadline. And we'll see Saturday night, as soon as the NXT deadline goes off the air, on our very special Instant Analysis podcast, right here on Getting Over in the exact same feed where you are listening to this right now, we will have that Instant Analysis show. You will get our post-show grade, along with breakdowns of every single match, uh, grades for every single match, and thoughts on where NXT will go from a storyline perspective coming out of NXT deadline. So thank you, of course, for listening to this Ultimate Preview, and do not forget to join us for NXT deadline Instant Analysis Saturday night as soon as that show goes off the air. I have yet to decide whether I am going to do a live show on Twitter Spaces for NXT Deadline. It may depend on what the excitement is for the show on Saturday. Uh, you know, recently we've we've done a couple of these that uh, weren't necessarily that well attended. The last one we did for AEW Full Gear it wasn't as well attended as we expected that it was going to be. Uh, the WWE ones that we've done in the afternoon, obviously for for reasons of them being in the afternoon, not as well attended as we expected. However, our Survivor Series pre-show was fantastic and tons of you were there. I just don't know whether there's going to be that same interest for NXT deadline. So given there's a lot of stuff happening Saturday, including that Army-Navy game, including the Heisman Trophy ceremony, that live show on Twitter spaces is to be determined. But if you follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, you will definitely get a tweet and a notification on whether we are going to do that show. Either way, we will have the pre and post show polls. We will tweet live throughout NXT deadline on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And that is exactly where you can find the episode getting dropped, the instant analysis episode, as soon as it goes off the air and that gets published onto our feed. In other words, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Also, please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast So drop those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, please leave a five-star written review as well. Let everyone know why you love listening to the show. And if you do, we will read your five-star review live right here on the podcast. I always appreciate when you guys go ahead and do that. Beyond NXT deadline this coming Saturday, we will be back next Tuesday for our latest WWE show. And then one week from now, our next NXT and AEW show on which we will talk ROH final battle as well as AEW winter is coming. So every reason in the world, if you're a first time listener, to subscribe to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, Apple, Spotify, everywhere you listen to podcasts, we are available. That is it for today. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.